we all know, maybe we're not aware of it sometimes, but packaging, the way something is packaged, has great power. Oftentimes, we make our decision based on what we buy, whether it be the grocery store, a sporting goods store, or whatever, based upon how it's packaged, not necessarily the quality of the item inside the package. We're all guilty of that. We like and we're enamored by slick packaging, good marketing, and sometimes you know, packaging is just practically helpful because it tells us information about the product. But I think we as consumers in America and throughout the world have kind of bought into this idea that maybe we can repackage the gospel, like put a human spin or look to it that may make it more appealing to people. And there's many churches, many denominations who are geared around this idea that they think that they can improve the gospel by the way that they spin it or, or share it. But the truth is the gospel message cannot be improved upon. It can't. It can't be improved upon. In fact, it so runs contrary to the way that we think sometimes that we think we need to do certain things. In reality, the gospel is working because it originates from God. It comes from God, and it's his power, not our power. Now, that's not to say there's not evangelism techniques or apologetics, things about the, the, the word or the scripture or about Jesus that we can learn to help us in our defense. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if we think that we, through our efforts, can convince somebody to receive the gospel, then we don't understand Scripture. And even uh, our passage, I'm going to lead in with a verse, and then we'll go back and cover it. It tells us that God saves us. And God calls us to a holy life, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. He has a purpose, and his grace, that he extends his grace to us. So many good-meaning, gospel-believing churches think that they can make the gospel more appealing by repackaging it in some way. But it, it's bizarre to me, it's, it's just ironic to me that churches that oftentimes are built on this idea of we've got we to reach the lost, that's what our goal is, to reach the lost, and then they give a steady dose of how-to, how to do this, how to be successful with this, how to live this way. And you would think that if they're bringing in unbelievers that the gospel would be pushed to the front because that's what people need, but unfortunately... That's not the approach that's taken, and those things can't save, and those things can't even sanctify. They can't, we can't even execute these how-tos if the Holy Spirit is not within us, giving us the power and strength to do that. So it's a little baffling to me how that, that, that an unbeliever expected to keep these things. And, and so then other churches, they just flat out preach a false gospel. It's a self-help gospel that stands far removed from what it means to be in Christ, to be, have union with Christ, to know Christ. And so following Jesus is turned into be a positive relationship to build people's self-esteem. Uh, we got to promote professional success. It's kind of the, you know, the whole health, wealth, and prosperity thing. But what is sorely missed is an understanding of Scripture that in God's kingdom, strength comes through weakness, greatness through service, wholeness through brokenness, in sanctification, as Paul is going to talk about a lot today, through suffering. So following Jesus doesn't mean guaranteed prosperity, but look, it does mean guaranteed suffering. It doesn't mean guaranteed prosperity, but it for sure does mean guaranteed suffering. And so today, as we look at our text, I want you to know that the, the how-to life 
is a die-to life. It's die-to, it's not do these things, follow these good principles. It's a death that happens when we come to Christ. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12 is where we're going to be today. If you'll turn in your Bible, you can follow along on the screen. The app is a great place to follow along as well because it provides you with extra uh, links and notes and other things that you can maybe look at later or even during the service. So we're looking at the book of 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. Let me read this for us. Paul writes to Timothy and to the church, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the, world, before the ages began. Verse 10, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what, he has, what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we truly, as we sang, we don't want to miss one word that you say. And God, your, your word tells us that all Scripture is inspired and is profitable. And Father God, I pray that those in here today who know you, who have come to the cross and died, that the Holy Spirit will use these words to allow them to take one step further one step closer to you. God, pray for the Christian in here who has sin in their lives. They're embracing known sin and refusing to confess that. God, I pray that today that they will just be broken and allow the gospel just to convict them of the, their ways and how that they're not fulfilling their purpose and they're bringing shame to the gospel. And God, I pray that today they will confess that and repent of it. We love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 8, Paul starts out, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And he says, nor of me, his prisoner. We know that Paul's in prison. I don't know if you've ever been guilty of this before. Don't raise your hand. could be embarrassing. But have you ever ran across a celebrity somewhere, and you see them maybe in a mall or outdoor somewhere, or you're on vacation, you see a celebrity. You're not going to find one of those in Bainbridge more than likely, all right? And you see one. And, and, and you're like, hey, 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 can I, can I get my picture made with you? And, and, they, and, you, and you put your arm around them, or they put their arm around you, and you take a picture with that person. And how, who's, who, who's not afraid to admit you've done that before, all right? All right, a few of you, all right? I, I'd, I'd love to know who those people are. But we put great emphasis on celebrities in our culture. We think that that gives us great notoriety. I mean, if you know somebody who's famous or important, just if you can hang out with that person, you know how it goes. I mean, you walk in to a restaurant with somebody who's noted or, or, or famous or recognized, all of a sudden you're like the center of attention. And it can do like a boost to our egos, and it can really make us feel like we're somebody. Well, the opposite was definitely true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day as well, that you can be also connected to someone who's not so popular or not so famous. They're looked down on by culture, 
and it can be humiliating or it can be something that just is very difficult to deal with. And that's what Paul's concerned about in our text today. Paul has been doing and saying things which are seen as an offense to people who had the power of his day. Those people who were part of that power structure during his time, they didn't want to hear anything about Jesus being Lord. Caesar was Lord, not this Jesus guy. And so Paul was declaring Jesus as Lord, and because of that, he was out of favor with those people who held the power. Does that sound familiar? More and more like our day and age. And so Paul knows that even those who are his friends who are associated with him may have a tendency to be ashamed of Paul or distance themselves from Paul because of what it would mean to them. And ultimately, Paul says that means that you're distancing yourself from Jesus. You're distancing yourself from the gospel itself. So what's the antidote to that? What's the antidote of worrying about being ashamed because of somebody and their situation or being ashamed of the gospel? The antidote is found right there in verse 8, but he says, but share in this suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There's the antidote, God's power. The antidote to the temptation of fear of those who are in power is to recognize and celebrate a greater power, right? To celebrate God's power, his authority. And so he says, the gospel, it's by the power of God. So God's power overrides all earthly power structures. God's power overrides it. And God demonstrated his superior power right there in the first century. This wasn't looking back years and years ago. This was demonstrated in the first century. Skip to verse 10, and we'll come back to verse 9 in a minute. He says, In which now, talking about God's grace for salvation, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. Not just through Jesus appeared, but he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news. What is the good news? It's Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so the antidote, Timothy, the antidote to us is if you're concerned about the power structure, you're concerned about those in authority, take note of a bigger authority, Timothy, and it's the power of God, and he proved that by raising Jesus from the dead. This isn't just some philosophy to add to the Roman culture of the day. This is something that was completely different. It was Jesus came and lived a life, died a death. But unlike every other human being who lived, he rose again, proving he was who he said he was. And so God is in control. Fear him. And we understand that sometimes suffering, a lot of times suffering is just part of the deal. Look at what Jesus said. Sometimes we forget this. In Luke 12, 4 through 5, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who will kill the body, and after that they have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you of whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Paul is reminding Timothy of a greater power and a greater fear that he should have. Keep your eyes on all powerful God. Don't attempt to appease or find common ground with the powers of the world. Don't try to get along with the powers of the world. 
but on a practical side, the powers of this world are, are fickle and ever-changing, and you never know because power is temporary. But in, regardless of that, we know that God's power always surpasses and trumps the earthly powers, and we have to keep that in our mind. So we shouldn't be surprised, he's telling Timothy, by suffering for the gospel. Suffering for a Christian must be expected. It's part of the deal. You just get it when you come to Christ. In verse 8, he says, share in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel. I think so many of us in Western culture, we've grown up in this very Christianized way of living, moral culture, and sometimes I think we're, we're a little shocked by the fact that persecution is coming at us. But if we'd been reading and studying our Bible or growing up in most of the other parts of the world, we would understand right off the beginning when you come to Christ, what's happening here is as you put your faith in Christ, you're also going to be persecuted and you're going to suffer for that because the power structure of the world doesn't like Jesus. Because Jesus says you can't just live life however feels good or whatever seems right. When you come to me, you follow me. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it, but at the same time, let me just say this. We shouldn't seek out suffering. I mean, if you look at the pattern and acts of the early church, as persecution came to one city, the followers of Jesus would move on to another place. They wouldn't just stay there and say, bring it on, all right, I want to suffer. They would move on. Nobody wants to suffer, but they understood that it was part of the process, part of what was going on in that day. And unlike our culture today, Paul, although he was a Roman citizen and that afforded him certain things, certain benefits, he, this wasn't a democracy. Rome wasn't a democracy. He couldn't you know, vote against the emperor. He couldn't even stand up against the emperor. He was at the mercy of the emperor, and so he had no voice in the political system of the day, unlike today. I, I do want to just bring this up. You know I'm rarely political in nature because the, the gospel is far superior, and politics are not going to solve anything. But I do want to note this because this, I think, is something that could be incredibly harmful to churches and Christians. And while we expect this to eventually happen and worse and worse things to come about to this earth and on Christians, we do, in our system, we have a way of voicing our opinion in a democratic republic and contacting our leaders, voting a certain way. And this, the U.S. Senate is prepared to vote on something that's so-called an Equality Act, okay? But even your most middle-of-the-road evangelicals are shocked by this legislation, including myself. And here's why. Let me just read what the National Association of Evangelicals have stated. It says, if this measure becomes law, many religious schools and charities would have to change their faith-based policies and practices or face sanctions that could force them to close their doors. I'm a product of a Christian college. If the school, Christian schools, don't follow the policy if it's enacted, they could lose federal funding, students couldn't go to school there, and so therefore it would put them at a major disadvantage. In fact, Ed Stetzer, I love Ed Stetzer. If you've not read Ed Stetzer, he, he works at Wheaton College in the Billy Graham um, uh, Foundation there. And he says, at Wheaton College, where I serve, 
we have a community covenant that aligns our life and beliefs. We affirm the biblical teaching that marriage is designed to be created for one man, one woman, and for a lifetime, for one lifetime. The Equality Act would, in its essence, say that our beliefs are unacceptable and that we must change. And so it puts at a great disadvantage many Christian institutions if they refuse federal funding, which may happen and it wouldn't be the end of the world. God provides. He's in control. He's sovereign. But at the same time, we live in a country where we can voice our opinion in this matter. So if you're following along in the app, I put a link in there for you where you can go straight to our senators and you can tell them what you think and make your voice known in this. Look, this, we're, look, we're all about treating every human being with dignity and respect. If you read the scriptures and if you follow the way of Jesus, every person is made in the image of God and they're, we should treat them in a way that Christ wants us to treat them. Plain and simple, end of the, end of the story. But this bill is not an equality act. This swings way the other direction. And in fact, it puts discrimination right at our front doors. We are the ones, faith-based organizations, churches, schools, are the ones being discriminated against. And so I don't think this will pass, but it's coming. Okay, it's coming. The world, you, know, you know where the world's heading. And apart from a revival, apart from God intervening, things are going to wax worse and worse. Scripture says the end is coming. Jesus is coming, all right? It's going to happen and we know that, and we praise God that he's in control, but we do have a voice. And so we live in a world where sinners sin. We know as believers we struggle enough with sin, but a sinner, somebody who doesn't know Christ, they're at sin's mercy. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And so they have no hope except for the gospel. And Jesus promised that persecution and trials will be his disciples, Luke 21, 13, opportunity to bear witness to tell people about their hope in Jesus. So these, if God allows this to happen, these things to happen in the course of your lifetime, these are opportunities to preach the gospel and to show Christ is more powerful. And what's going to happen is marginal Christians will flee the church. They'll say, I don't want any part of this suffering thing. That's, I, that's not, I'm just here to feel good. I want some how-tos to live my life and make my life more prosperous and better. That's why I signed up for, I'm out of here. This is not what I've signed up for. Jesus says, suffering is part of the deal, and we shouldn't be shocked by suffering. You know what would be shocking, all right? What would be shocking is the early church, if they came and sat through the majority of church services in our country today and heard the steady dose of how to make your life better. I mean, they'd be like, look, we're just trying to survive. Like, we're, just, we're just trying to live and, and breathe and share Christ, and we're getting uh, abused. And I'm hearing you talking about how we can win a life and how we can be prosperous and how we can feel positive about ourselves. What is that? That's not the gospel. The gospel is a call to come and die. When Jesus called us and his invitation was to come and die to ourselves, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And again, the world's philosophy is, Live for yourself. Do what feels good. And Jesus says, live for me. Do what I tell you. Die to yourself. And so Jesus told us it was critical to count the cost of following him before we come to Christ. Count it. Consider it. And so the call to come to Christ is inevitably a call to come and die. Think about 
the disciples, what that meant for them, honestly, practically. They're standing there, four disciples on the seashore. They're fishermen. That's been their livelihood. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And what did they do? They followed him. They walked away from their boats, which was their source of income. They walked away from their possessions, their dreams, their ambitions, their safety net, and they followed Jesus. How did that turn out for them? Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James was beheaded. And John, he got the best deal. He just was sent off to an island to die alone by himself, exiled. What they believed cost them everything, but was it worth it? Absolutely. So this call to die, it includes dying to any attempt to save yourself, dying to the sins that are always coming at you practically as a Christian that you have to say, I'm not going to give in to that through the power of the Holy Spirit. It means dying to your schedule and putting God first in your schedule, dying to your plans to make life your way comfortable for you instead of Christ living through you. But in dying, we experience the best life possible. And if that isn't fulfilled on this earth, if you don't have the incredible joy that just permeates everything about you, I promise you that you will experience it one day when you stand before Jesus face to face. Not because you did all the stuff and earned it. It's because what Jesus did for you. Look at verse 9. It says, who saved us? God saved us. And he called us to a holy calling not because of our works, not because of all the things that we did to earn it or merit it, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. And so if you're right here sitting and you're thinking, you know what, I've got to crucify my sinful desires and keep, and I've got to try harder and do more, you've fallen into this legalistic mindset and you've basically missed what grace is all about. You've skipped grace-based living, and you're back to law living, which minimizes the power of Christ's death over sin. And so it's about relying upon him working through us because he, verse 9, he's the one, look at it again. He saved us, and he called us to a holy calling. He saved you, and he called you to a holy calling, which he gave you in Christ Jesus. Every other religion of the world, in some way, shape, or form, you're trying to build a bridge over to God. You're trying to get to God, whether God is enlightenment or whether it's some false God. There's, you're, you're attempting to build a bridge to him. But that's not the gospel. In the gospel, which is Christ died for us, we're justified. There's no process to salvation. It happens immediately when you believe. It happens immediately when you believe. And so if you've come in here with the mindset that, okay, I've, I've attended church. I'm a nicer person than my neighbor. I'm a pretty good you know, person overall. I try to give a certain percent of my income to help out other people through the church or another organization. And you think you're checking off the list that you've done pretty good. You've missed the gospel. There's no way that you can build a bridge to God. God came for you. He saved you. He called you. And he's inviting you to put your faith and believe in him. So it's not a process. It happens immediately when we believe. It's called, in Scripture, it's called justification. God declares us righteous when we put our faith in him. And look at verse 9 again. It says, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If you've responded to God's call, his sovereign grace, salvation, you understand this. Salvation is the work of God from start to finish. 
from start to finish, it's been the work of God. And maybe you think that that moment of salvation, that that was all you, like, okay, I, I believed, but you don't see that what God was doing behind the scenes through relationships and circumstances and people and events as he's wooing you to himself. God, it says, before the ages began. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 8, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, verses 29 and 30. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that they may be the firstborn among many brothers. Now watch this, verse 30. For those whom he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. All right? Glorified is future, future glorification. But it's as well as done. If, you're, if your faith is in Jesus, if you're God's, then it's as good as done. There's no holding on or hoping you measure up or, you know, if I can just bring myself low enough or if I can just achieve enough, then maybe God will accept me one day. The gospel is God did it all, beginning to end. And yes, it, it feels like I was very much part of that process. And yes, I was responsible to respond to the gospel, but it's God's work. It's God's work. And I'm so thankful. You know why? Because it's not about the quality of my faith. Aren't you glad about that? It's not about the quality of your faith. It's about the object of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. And who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ what he's done for me on the cross. And Paul says in verse 11, look, he says, for which I have been appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And so what he's saying is God saves people through the proclamation of his gospel. He uses us to preach his word, to share his word. Salvation is the work of God, but it's experienced through the presentation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is my job. This is your job. We have all been sent to teach, to preach, to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know what? If you've tried that before, if you share the gospel with, with people, there's nothing you can do to convince somebody. You share the work, the results, is in God's hands. You pray. God uses prayer to open people's eyes to the beauty of the gospel. God delights in using our prayers to accomplish his purposes. And so we rest. We, we share, we pray, and then God does the work. He finishes what he starts. And Paul says, interestingly enough, he says, that's why I suffer as I do. So God saves people through the proclamation of the gospel, and we will most likely suffer for the gospel when we proclaim it. All right? Do you see that? God saves through the proclamation. People need to hear, yes, it's good. We need to authenticate the gospel by the way that we live our lives. But people come to faith through hearing the gospel. And that's the very place where we experience the suffering is when we proclaim it. People need rescue from their sins. People need reconciled to God. But sinners don't want to hear that God's wrath is on them. They don't want to hear that part of the gospel. They don't want to hear about God's wrath. Just tell me the love stuff, the good stuff, the feel-good things. And again, that's this whole how-to culture. Just religion can be something that I just add to my life to make my life a little bit better. 
a, a little bit more fulfilling, a little bit more satisfying. But it's all a man-centered approach. And so many churches, it's sad, so many churches are removing the, a, a critical element of the gospel, which is God's wrath that's on sin because they want how to rather than die to. In fact, and this is not to offend anyone, if you listen or watch this pastor, I'm just pointing out the truth here, and then you can process it and talk to me later, right? Before their service, they say some things and repeat some things back to the, as, as a group, and many of the things, as you read them, they're, they're really solid, like this one. It says, this is my Bible, I am what it says I am. This is my Bible, it, I am what it says I am. But the problem, as noted by the pastor himself, that he doesn't want to be a negative preacher. So he doesn't talk about the wrath of God. He just wants to give love. He doesn't want to talk about God's wrath. But I'm sorry, but if this book tells you what you are, you know what it says? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Exactly right. It tells us, Romans 8.7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostility toward God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It tells us verses like Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you used to live. A person needs to hear that they are a sinner. And God's wrath is on them. And it's not because of what they've done. It's because of who they are. They were born into sin. And yes, we've sinned, and, and the, the evidence is crystal clear, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we must preach God's wrath in order to preach his love and his mercy. And then the Spirit uses that to open the eyes of the unbelievers. So Paul says, look at verse 12 again. I love this part. He says, I suffer, but I know, but I, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he, as Paul's sitting there in prison writing this, I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Know what Paul says here. If I was writing this, I would probably would have thought, you know, but I know, for I know I'm not ashamed, for I know what I have believed. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, I know whom I have believed. Because Christianity, for many people, can be seen as just this system, this philosophy, even this, this set of, of theology, a systematic theology. And I believe this what? I put my faith in this what? But the gospel is a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's a who. And so when we focus in on the what, it's so tempting to say, God, you fulfill my desires. I'm buying into the system, so God, you fulfill my desires. But when we see God as a whom, we see Christianity, our faith as a whom, we say, God, you be my desire. God, you be my desire. Not fill my desire, not how to tack on three things to make my life better, but God, you be my desire. And whatever you bring into my life, I know that your word tells me it's for your glory and it's for my good. So Paul found Jesus more desirable enjoyable and beautiful than anything else. That's why you could say things like, no matter where I'm at, what condition I'm in, I'm going to rejoice, as we talked about in Philippians. He was in prison. He knew that he was inevitable, that he was going to die soon, and he was going to see Jesus face to face. But he couldn't wait because why? It wasn't about a system of beliefs. It was about a person who he would see very, very soon. And so religious people find God useful to their lives. 
It's useful, you know, good stuff, good sermon, good practical stuff. Give me some things to live by. Give me some things to, to reorient my life to so I can find more success. But people who know Jesus, it's about a person, and it's about a relationship. And that's why Paul was able to say, you know what, I'm persecuted, but I'm bearing my cross. I'm focused on him and his beauty, and as I go more and more years with Jesus, he becomes more and more beautiful, and he says, Verse 12, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In spite of being in prison for the gospel and being seen by society as this failure, this guy who didn't follow the structure that was in the day, and he's going, he's pushing against it. Now he's going to be put to death. Paul stands convinced. He says, I'm convinced that the God who called him would indeed guard the gospel message until Jesus returned, until that day he saw Jesus or Jesus returned. Paul did not simply just endure this adversary and this suffering. Paul was able to identify with Christ in that suffering. He identified with Christ through that suffering. So even the suffering became an opportunity for Paul to have more confidence in Jesus. And so if we are to die to ourselves and follow Jesus, we must have absolute confidence in all that Jesus has done for us on the cross, and that his word is completely trustworthy, we can believe him. We can have confidence in Christ, confidence in the gospel, and in that we move forward. doesn't mean we won't struggle at times. doesn't mean our faith doesn't waver at times, but we keep our eyes upon Jesus. As I was preparing for this sermon, I ran across a quote from a, a very, very old dude that died many, many years ago. His name's John Calvin. He says this. He says, He who, struggling with his own weakness, presses toward faith in his moment of anxiety is already in large part victorious. Let me read that again. Let that set in. He who, struggling with his own weakness, presses toward faith in his moment of anxiety is already in large part victorious. What he's saying is, in those moments where your faith is struggling and your faith is weak, when you look toward Jesus, in large part, you've been victorious because God doesn't promise you to remove you from the circumstances that are causing your anxiety and your struggle. But God does promise to be there with you in the struggle. And you look to him and you invite him into the moment. And in that, God is glorified in your suffering. And you find great joy in that moment because Jesus and our relationship with him, a who, not a what, brings us the joy. So for our head today, you need to remember, regardless of what you're going through, Jesus is worth it. And for us today, it's not yet physical suffering like it was Paul, but suffering is inevitable. You live in a broken body that's going to break down at some point. People are going to get cancer. They're going to get sick. They're going to be in the hospital. This is a form of suffering. And in that moment, you say either, I can do this, or Jesus, I'm trusting you. I don't know what you're doing. It doesn't feel good, but you're worth it, Jesus. And I'm going to, my heart here, press toward faith. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust your grace in this moment. I'm going to lean into you, God. I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. And then as our hands, as Mac 
so said so beautifully today. You're like, you got to do something, all right? So many times it's like more philosophy, more theology, more up here in our heads, and we never take the step of actually applying this to our lives. We've talked about this, this legacy series of passing this on, doing something intentional in the home. And this is children, this is grandchildren. It's if you're, if you're single and you're with your parents, it's being part of being intentional with your parents in home, directing things toward Jesus. You have responsibility too. And so look for opportunities to be intentional with the gospel in your house, living the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself, preaching it to others. Not saying, let's open our Bibles to Romans. I'm going to walk you through the Romans road today. This is living it out, speaking it, knowing it, making it an integral part of your life. We got together, uh, Mitch and Megan, Michelle and I, and Johnny and Brenda, and we put together a video just talking about our own raising our children, the gospel, the things we did well, the things we didn't do so well. I just want to finish our time this morning with before the band plays the last song with this video, and I hope it will encourage you to take action in your home. Don't be nervous. Don't be scared. Don't be worried. Take action. Do something in the name of Christ. One thing I was hoping would happen with my boys that didn't happen with me is that I knew the words. Uh, I was very churched but didn't have really a love relationship with Christ. Because I think kids can really see when we're being hypocritical. And God was <clears throat> used a devastating situation when I found out <clears throat> at 28 years old I had stage three colon cancer. That really got our attention and the seriousness of, of life. That's how God just worked goodness out of all of that because really for eternity it changed our life. God is definitely faithful and, and I'm really, it's more God's grace than we were great parents. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, That's all of us. A quote that I saw something along these lines many years ago that stuck with me is you can't give away something that you yourself don't possess. It's being intentional when I am home. Lunches and, and that nighttime. And a lot of it comes from just something that happens in real life and address not only the issue, but then I, I go to the heart of it. You know, and I always, I am intentional about bringing scripture into those moments. I would say the routines, that's the most practical thing that I come back to over and over is just what is our family's routine? What does our weekly schedule look like? And then where do I seize time and conversation with them within that? Finding time that's already in your routine versus feeling like you have to carve out this big sermon on Thursday nights for my family. Like it's just, it's just not that. It's just living it out, but also, yeah, like rooting in to your routine that it's so well worn that they just naturally go down those paths and you're ready. Shelby is our oldest. And so she's 24, Harrison's 14, so there's 10 years difference between them. Um, and so we've always geared towards Shelby and Collins level. But there's more to the Bible than information, that it's, it's practical application. All of us would say we've made so many mistakes, it's mm -hmm. unreal. Yep. And sometimes you just push through these seasons of life by just continuing to do the routines even when you may not feel like it. The more they seem to see us humbled, 
think the more transparent they'll be with you. Mm -hmm. I want to add one more thing. Is I think also demonstrate there's joy in the Lord. In other words, we don't have a God that's not a kill joy in heaven. <clears throat> just saying, no, there's really joy in honoring His principles. There's great joy in community. You know, doing it together versus your family being on an island, isolated. When you bring other people into it and you learn and hear, I mean, there's just, to me, great joy in that aspect of it. But we're all going to be different. We just want everyone to um, have confidence to do something. Don't be intimidated, I guess is the point. You know, just pick something to do this week. And God knows our heart. Right. And He honors that heartfelt commitment. And He can cover a lot of deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And He has so true. covered a bunch of deficiencies yeah. in what we do. That's good.